This is Ross Payton with Roleplaying Public Radio. We're, this is RPPR episode 102, Rules Fetish. And with me, not as always, is Mr. Caleb Stokes, because Tom is on vacation. He is. He's yeah. he's wandering America like Kane from Kung Fu, yes. if he was bad at Kung Fu and didn't particularly care about your problems. Well, I'm sure he cares about the problems, but he's not going to do anything silly like... I, I said fight. particularly, like, yeah. he, he he will sympathize. Yeah, he will. And then go, go on his way. <laughs> yeah, like any sensible person would. <laughs> I would do the same thing. I'm that not, sucks, bro. Yeah, if the local gangsters <laughs> were shaking down your... Auto, your father's auto shop for protection money <laughs> and he was going to close up you know or the community center was going to close up because of that I'd be like well that that's terrible well, that's America for you you know uh, it's a great country but it's there's systematic inequality uh, anyway we're getting off topic so in this episode we're going to be talking about uh, rules complexity versus the their utility in games uh, when do rule making and simulationism get go too far when when rules become literally a fetish and yeah. the part of the game experience stands in for the whole of the game experience yeah uh, so uh, this will be uh, more of a analytical episode but we'll, we'll still have a lot of fun with it uh, but first off we have a bit of news uh, first off uh, big news no soul left behind Kickstarter is upcoming we're working on the promotional angle of it right now the video and the text and the other stuff so. oh, i just recorded a video i apologize to everyone who has to see you by face <laughs> and we'll be interspersing with some uh, some still images and uh whatnot and i'll have some dramatic music that that might help oh yeah well some fancy the the, the finest royalty free free music that i can get. <laughs> so only the best yeah, only the for best. you backers <laughs> uh but seriously uh i worked really hard on it and i would be Totes appreciative yeah. if you would uh, please back that book. We'll probably have another episode up pretty soon after this one so we can plug it. Beg again. <laughs> Beg again. <laughs> when we do Kickstarters, you get more content. Imagine my internet it. cup of change jingling as hard as you can. Yes. It's for the key. Because we're all kids at heart. <laughs> yes. Uh, next up, Gen Con is uh, also approaching us. So uh, we will be running games. Uh, we'll have the RPPR meetup on Thursday night. Uh, there are details on the RPPR message board, uh, which I will link to. Uh, we'll be doing a seminar for RPPR Game Designers Workshop. Yeah. And we'll be doing another uh, panel discussion with Rob Boyle from Eclipse Face yeah. on economics and games. Yeah. So. If you want to hear about how you can uh, turn inflation into a plot, uh, we, we'll be talking about that. So, Yeah. Uh, it is uh, going to be Toots McGoot's awesome. Yes. And so, uh, John Maynard Keynes' stats in D&D. He'll be giving that out. Uh, in 5th edition, of course. Uh, yes, definitely 5th edition. He has advantage. The market uh, demands 5th edition. <laughs> uh, so we uh, also there's a new episode of Unspeakable, uh, the Unspeakable Oath podcast. Uh, episode 11 uh, just came out, so go take a listen. Uh, we have uh, Ryan Macklin on as a guest, and of course uh, Mr. Adam Sky Blancy and Shay and I, as always, and me, a little bit. <laughs> and uh, there's also uh, some of my work in Eclipse Phase uh, has been put in the Morph Recognition Guide, which has just come out. It is a 130 pages of new morph art and all the morph 
rules collected in one handy dandy volume uh so you can see what the samson Wharf, which is one i i came up with and the, the uh, all the others yeah who cares about you? and they've got added sidebar yeah. uh text of fire all agents basically yelp reviewing <laughs> actual bodies uh, there's actually a lot, which a good is pretty number of plot hooks in them. yeah there's a great number of plot hooks they're really good so if yeah. you ever wanted to run used morph salesman uh, Eclipse Phase campaign. This yeah. is the book for you. Or Mad Men with Morphs. Mad Morphs. <laughs> hey, yeah, talk yeah, about yeah. economic stuff. There's more, a campaign more. right there. There we go. Gotta advertise the new uh, Olympian model. Make it sexy. Discount the splicers. Yeah. They're about to turn. <laughs> oh. uh, so, and also, uh, finally, in other news, we, uh, Raillery, we're doing a bunch of stuff on Raillery. Mostly, what? Well, and by a bunch of stuff, I mean Payday 2. We're all playing Much Payday. Much Payday. It is. Really good. We're telepathic mutants fighting an elemental plane of cops. Uh, yes. I I want it to be a role-playing server, but I'm usually alone at that. I'll keep posting. No one else stays in character. <laughs> I know. <laughs> well, there's cops to be shot, so if cop killer is uh, role-playing, I'm role-player of the year. So. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> anyway, so uh, missing the forest for the trees. That's kind of rules fetishization in a nutshell. Uh, this is, and so when we first talk about it, I mean, the, the, the easy, the, the, the fish in a barrel example is uh, Phoenix Command. If you're firing a shotgun uh, at a fish in a barrel and you can figure out what pellets <laughs> hit what fish and how much the water alters the trajectory of these pellets and uh, lessens their impact. Then that is your seven system. hours later. You would see if you hit that fish and if it survived. And, yeah, I mean, we would hit the left fin. I mean, is that <laughs> going to impair mobility on this fish? Is it gonna like? It's a very complex system, and <laughs> this is um, games in the eighties tended to go one or two ways. One is super, super, super rules light, uh, which would be like tune or the Rocky and Bullwinkle adventure game, uh, <laughs> which is a real thing, and it came with hand puppets. Wow. And I want to eBay that shit. Uh, you know I who, missed out on so much. This is early 80s. Do you know who worked on that, too? though? No. Warren Spector, who later came up with Deus Ex. <laughs> That's kind of crazy. Uh, which makes me want to get it even more. So, anyway, uh, totally useless aside. So, But on the other side is Phoenix Command, which is... Not a game so much as calculus problems. Like, yeah, well, that's yeah, that's one, that's one end. But you, you still have this kind of thing in newer system. A lot of people say, yeah, uh, like Eclipse Phase, uh, when people are talking about character generation. Yeah, uh, yeah. So Eclipse Phase, it, as we mentioned before on podcasts, is very front end heavy. Um, so, for instance, you know, without that Excel character generator, yeah. you are going to be making character or or the uh, different packages included in transhuman uh before that came out without those two aids you are going to literally be making your character for four to five hours yes yeah. uh, i've also heard one other come like uh too many skills in it like and too many overlap between skills like, yes yes uh, like so the difference between deception and impersonation and you uh, know or just a knowledge skill. and disguise and you know uh yes uh so there's a lot of that um, I still love the game totally, yeah. but yeah, it is very much in, and you can tell this by talking to posthuman. They wanted to do transhumanism, yeah. the game. They wanted it more than anything else, and it shows. Uh, now, thankfully, they have a good, easy to run, quick to play game 
after you get that out of the way. So once you've sleeved, once you've done that front end stuff, you can play a game really snappy and quick with really tight mechanics. Um, But then if you're sleeving mid-game, everything is going to screech to a halt as you go back to that sort of very fetishistic, what gear do you have, what gear are you, uh, what gear are you wearing kind of stuff. Yeah. I mean, I think every... RPG has this to one degree or the other. And I think the thing is there's no objective answer to a certain degree because gamers want different things out of their games. Yeah. And the reason I think a lot of this happens is because game designers are trying to be like Microsoft in the sense they want to be all things to all people. Yeah. Like Microsoft Office has a billion fucking features. You're only going to need, any given user is only going to need like 10% of those features. But they want, but overall broad spectrum 100% of those users are going to use 100% of those features and Microsoft wants to sell to all of them yeah and so it it, it, it builds up a lot of complexity that's why you see shit like encumbrance rules and I understand this impulse because uh, speaking of red markets still working on it um I mean, the first draft of red markets was like boy aren't encumbrance rules fun and it was just nothing but how much are you carrying how many specific bullets can this specific gun hold and uh, and I got I wrote like twenty thousand words of that before I realized wow this wouldn't be fun at all this right. would be terrible to play <laughs> um, so I get the impulse it, it makes it makes a lot of sense but you and at sometimes you have to notice it and then there are some games that don't notice it at all and just barrel straight ahead yeah with that like I think what brought this up was Continuum yeah Aaron. We were talking about Continuum in sort of awe, me, Thad, and Ross, just because it's the most enjoyable RPG book I've ever read that I will never, ever play or run. Yeah. Um, Because, I mean, it is time travel if time travel actually existed. Like, it is very complex to keep track of. uh, And I don't even know what a game would look like. And Aaron's, like, obsessive with time travel. Yeah. Quite literally obsessive about it. It's like, no, I'll run it. I can do it. And Aaron like reads it. And he's just like, just hanging his head down. Sand loss. I, uh, I mean, I like that I have a copy of Continuum because I feel like I've given it to you. Yeah, I've given it to Thad. I've given it to Aaron, and it's beaten you all. And I, I didn't even try. Like you guys went further than I did. I read the example like play description, which is like, here's an example of play. And I'm like, yeah, I'm done. I'm, I'm done. Yeah, I don't feel totally <laughs> stupid either. Like, but it's just. Yeah, you have to keep track of like the second by seconds of your travel yeah. and like paradox. And every event. And every event. Oh, it's just nightmarish to yeah. think about running it. And that's the thing. Like, the setting material in Continuum is very interesting. It's a thoroughly interesting and unique concept. Yeah. But all of that stuff is secondary to this is how time travel works. <laughs> and like, you literally can't get to the game over this wall of rules. That's like, this is how time travel works. So there's like, it's like a big plexiglass wall where like, there's a game I want to try to play and tell a story in on the other side of this big wall, but you're not going to get past the obsessive time travel. Like, oh wait, you didn't take into account that the Earth is moving through this universe at this amount of speed in orbit around the sun? It does that? No, yeah, it's time travel. It's like, well, time travel, if you're really finding to find a unique space... The Earth is hurtling through the universe at this speed. So you're literally, like, wow. having to keep track of all this stuff so you don't pop into, like, vacuum. a vacuum of space. Yeah. And it's just... 
And I love that it takes that much into account, but it does nothing to streamline that information. You have to keep like a ledger, quite literally, for every single character. Yeah. And I don't know how the GM's going to keep track of that. No. And it, it, it is quite literally a rules. To be finish. honest, like, I, I think it might be able to run that if, but you couldn't do it in a normal tabletop setting. I think the only way I could see it practically working out is if you had a very obsessive, very detailed oriented GM who ran it as a play by post game over the internet with yeah, asynchronous. Maybe. Yeah. Because then you like the player posts this, the GM takes notes. And then, like, this happens. And every other player can take time to figure out the paradoxes and what the hell is happening. How much frag you got now? Yeah. We're on the third post. You're dead. And, yeah, it attempts to walk you through it. Like, when you're first, I think when you're first made a time travel, you can only move an hour or so back and forth in time and stuff like that. But it's still just, oh, it's just so crazy. Like, (laughs) but it's got good fiction and stuff like that. So, yeah, that's what we're talking about. Games that have, uh, a a some sort of obsessive need to simulate something yeah. that in turn sabotages the rest of the game or is just not as good as the rest of the game because it's obsess- obsessively trying to simulate something which can't be simulated. Like yeah. um, Ken and Robin talked about this and they had a big argument over simulation versus modeling. Yeah. And I was really intrigued by what Ken Height said and he's like well, no one ends a relationship and says, well, thank you for that. That was a lovely love simulation. Like, <laughs> even when you simulate something, you know it's not real. That's, like, we're not talking about the Matrix here. Nobody's going to get into an RPG and be, like, confusing it for reality. Yeah. You're always modeling things to some degree. And when people just can't see that that you're never going to get there, so you might as well stop at a certain point where it stops being fun, uh, I think problems occur in game design. Uh, yeah, no, it, it does. And the thing is, why is this fun? I mean, recently there's a, on the Delta Green email list, there's this huge discussion about the alpha play test and blah, blah, blah. And that led to uh, someone bitching about the fact that it still uses hit points for the character. Cause they, and Dennis Detweiler was like, we want, we're, we're good. one of our design goals was be compatible with Call of Cthulhu. Yeah. That means hit points. You can design your own realistic injury table or system. It won't be Delta Green, you know. Mm-hmm. Go for it, and and for me, you know, it's thing one in Call of Cthulhu. Hit points have never been a problem. Characters have never been able to survive that much. Like, yeah, you you a few gunshots and you're dead. It's if you can't dodge out of the way. Uh, it, it's also to what I mean. What utility does that have in the in the game? How is that going to be fun? How does that improve the quality of the game? I mean, yeah. like. You when you have a shitty rule, I mean that that actively makes the game less fun. You know, like uh, you know the obviously easy again fish in a barrel is the palladium system. They have like terrible skills that don't explain how you can use them. You can't make attribute tech checks. You can't like you know. There's so many things that are like holy shit. Once you go, once you you try a system that has these kind of common quality of life things. Yeah. Then you go back to playing, and you're like, holy shit, I can't do this, I can't do this. <laughs> yeah. When I'm running a game, I can't play it. It's just like, it's terrible. And so there's that. But then with simulation rules, like, what, how does this make the game better? You know? And, you know, every game has these kind of things. Like, I think one of the things actually in Call of Cthulhu is, in, to a certain degree, I think the burst fire weapons for automatic weapons. Because it makes automatic weapons ridiculously 
powerful and dangerous. Which they are. Which they are. But it's... It, but it, you it, also have to roll 70 dice yeah. for a single attack. Like, and it's, it gets very laborious. Yeah. And very quickly. It, and it does. And and so I, I kind of I dislike that. Also characters... I mean, I guess this is more lack of rules, but the characters are cut out cardboard figures that have no connection to the outside world outside of their credit rating. They, there's no well, I mean, mechanics. Every, for, yeah, every game has its focus, and yeah. and Call of Cthulhu does have wound rules. There's yeah. sanity rules. Like yeah. there's extensive like D10 random yeah. insanity tables and things like that. Your wounds in Call of Cthulhu are your specific mental malady. Yeah, they go in there, and then you die. But that's a relief. And like, <laughs> and so Call of Cthulhu has its own focus, and it is trying to be more simulationist on at least for a genre um, to simulate what happens in Lovecraft fiction. But at the same time, like, it, I'm not saying the game shouldn't have focus. Is that sometimes that focus overwhelms the premise of an RPG yeah. at, at times. Um, so we were talking about like games that rules in, in like a wide variety of games that tend to go on this. Mm-hmm. For me, it's all vehicle damage or vehicle collision rules. Like, because if vehicles collide, for me, I care about one of three outcomes. We're fine. We're injured, we're dead. I need the rules to simulate exactly that much yeah. and no more. Because, <laughs> yes, vehicle collisions are insanely deadly. Yes, car crashes are awful. Why do I want to play a game just about car crashes? I don't. And then the situation. Auto in- duel. Auto- okay, auto duel. <laughs> that's the focus of the game. But, like, in other games, like, why do I need that much information if I just need to discover one of these three things? Because if I'm crashing in a game, it is a genre crash. Like, car crashes are a trope and yeah. a plot tool in genre fiction. And they need to do that job and no more. Yeah. But then, in the number of games, from like Shadowrun to. It, you know anything else have these extent GURPS. GURPS, yeah, well, GURPS have these extensive like mass speed <laughs> hit area calculations that are just entirely close and they slow down a car chase a literal honest to god car chase <laughs> the thing you include in movies because you have to keep people from going to sleep like yeah. a exciting moment have suddenly got down by you doing physics at the table and i just never understand that you you had your own um, uh, grenade scattered eyes. Yeah. <laughs> uh, because this is so common. I mean, I see it in like D and D and just uh, especially games in the eighties, but like even now D and like for a third ed had it. I don't think, I think they did take it out of fourth ed, but uh, probably I'm sure Pathfinder has it, but you know, it's, you throw a grenade and oh it bounces or the artillery and like well is that dramatic like do you really need to go into that level of detail for fucking figuring out where exactly where the grenade goes on the grid table or yeah again it's what the player wants to know at that moment did i hit them with grenade shrapnel (laughs) or did i not hit them with grenade shrapnel that's a skill check that's one skill check yeah like you don't need to do each individual bounce down a set of steps or something like that. Yeah. Like, uh, so, I mean, in going back to the vehicle collision rule, yeah, you have the three possible results. And it's the amount of effort you need to figure out which of those three results. I mean, if in most in most RPGs, a vehicle collision is basically going to be fatal. I mean, you're going you, they're usually like at the high end of damage. You yeah. Know? Like it's ninety d six or whatever, you know. And so like you just roll. Why do you need to figure out that it's ninety versus eighty six d six? You know. Uh, I mean, a lot of these ru- rules. Again, I think this is again 
then getting back to the Microsoft thing is like the game developers want to cover every possibility of things that can happen and they want to approach it with the same kind of depth and then it, they don't give real good – the rules themselves, though, aren't very modular. And so people who don't want to give a shit, you know, like you, <laughs> like, I really want to figure out exactly how many D6s worth of damage I want to do for that. But there are gamers who want to do that. There are good- Yeah, and it's not bad. Like, yeah. uh, when I was writing the devotees, like, there was definitely a different perspective between Jack and I. And yeah. it worked out, and I think it made it a better scenario. But there are things that I did in the playtest and in writing that I just kind of hand-waved, like – Jack wanted to know exactly the distance between each individual space in the habitat and the amount of travel time, on average, it would take to get there from the exterior of the habitat mm-hmm. versus the interior of the habitat. And when I ran the playtest of the devotees, you were ro- you arrived when it was narratively convenient yeah. to have you arrive and something was happening there. And I'm just like, I am completely content to say, like, well, the characters show up when it's interesting for them to show up. Because this is all make-believe. But yeah. other people don't want to do that. And it, it it's not a bad scenario. It's not a bad choice. It's just a different aesthetic choice. What we're talking about here is that not cases like the devotees or anything in Eclipse Face, but when that just goes to a crazy bananas extreme that doesn't make your game more fun. Yeah. Or makes it unplayable in certain cases. So. Yeah, I mean, and as a counterexample, I actually did calculate for the duality campaign, which we will be posting uh, in the fut- near future. There were there was a time where I did calculate how long it would take the players to get from point A to point B, and that was or like for character from point A to point B, which was like measured in weeks because it was like from something in the main belt to from like uh, Oberon or not Oberon, but like Titan, the Titanian Commonwealth yeah. or something like that. And but I didn't do I did not do that during the game. And I did that for my... And the, the rules for that were kind of covered in Eclipse Phase. Yeah. Um, and I think the thing is, in the Eclipse Phase travel times, that's... As a thought exercise, it's really impro- important for the GM to know, because especially... It, it, to for forecasting and... Well, it, I mean, actually on a conceptual level, to yeah. understand how the society works, because the main, the rimward part of the, the Eclipse Phase universe, or the setting, is culturally very presented very differently than the inner system. And part of the reason is the the sheer amount of distance between each of these polities, you know, between the Jovians and Titan and between, you know, the Anarchists and, you know, all the way at the ass end of the solar system versus uh, the main belt and that kind of thing. And because it, there's no FTL drive outside of Pandora Gates and, you know, Pandora Gates are hand waving. <laughs> so... Because a lot of times when you look at, like, uh, a GM picks up this Eclipse Days book and starts reading through them, he's like, okay, well, they'll go here in the next session, they'll go here, they'll go here, they'll go here. And then you read the book, it, it doesn't jump out of you. Yeah, that takes six months unless you're far casting. Yeah. And then, so it's hard. So for you, so you can't get back up. And so it means a lot in terms of a GM sort of like, no. They're really fucking far apart. Everything's really distant out here. There's a lot of fucking space just in the solar system. Uh, it's not something you think about because, especially for sci-fi fans, everyone's used to the Star Wars, Star Trek. You're there when you need to be, and yeah. so you don't. It's it's part of the setting is that everything is so. So yeah. that's a, that's that's kind of an edge case. That's kind of like, but you and, know. and sometimes it's good to get out of your sort of aesthetic. So like. Even though we have those rules in the devotees now, yeah. like I would still hand wave when characters get there when I run it. Yeah. But another thing that happened when we were writing is that I designed uh, awe 
mm-hmm. in in No Evil and in the campaign to be scary from a philosophical perspective, like yeah. the loss of self and all that kind of stuff. And that's great. But Jack was just like, yeah, but how does it work? Yeah. To the point where I literally read nothing but cognitive science journals and texts for like a month. To make like a prototype of all for the campaign because they're very hard sci-fi, but at the same time, I think it's far stronger. Yeah, and it's less lazy on my part, and it's a far scarier uh, threat now as a result of me having done that. So, yeah, yeah I, I think it's good to get out of your aesthetic at time, but there are times when, and I think it's more noticeable when it goes bad than anything else. Yeah. Uh, when the simulationist goal will just really jump in the way of having fun at the table. Yeah, it does happen. Uh, I mean, the killer, the thing is, whenever you have to stop to look up a rule in the game, when yeah. you get to one of these weird edge cases, like somebody hits him with a car instead of just shoots him. You know how guns work in the game. You know what how that pro, that procedure works. But when you hit him with a car, you're like, oh, shit, I need to blah, 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 make a drive check. Oh, how much damage hap- How much damage is inflicted on the car when you hit the zombie with it? You know, yeah. like that. And it just kills the game. And I think the thing is with these simulationist rules, uh, they they can be like for you for the devotees. I think the travel time. The reason why you didn't worry about it is because it was a one shot. We just appeared. The stage was set near uh, Legba, and we just appeared near that. But if we, if oh no, it's not travel times yeah. to get to Legba. It's travel times within Legba. Like uh, okay. if I want to get to the cafeteria to the soul market or something. Yeah. How long is it going to take me to move through the hallways? Yeah. Like, and yeah, I mean, and that's for some people, but like, I, and we did that. And I mean, if you want that, that's in the game now. Yeah. But yeah, it's just, in, in my design aesthetic, I was just like, okay, yeah, okay. You get there when it's fun. Again, I think, I mean, even with that, I could see a kind of a useful idea because again, it's a zero gravity station. Yeah. Uh, it's microgravity environments. And it could very well, like, um, people think that you can run that. If distance. you've got less chest trust for your GM. Yeah. And you're more afraid of a killer GM, and the station's going to explode in T minus whatever. Yeah. You totally need those rules. Yeah. Like, yeah, you totally need those rules. But, uh, there, and what I'm saying is like they're not bad rules, but it's just an example of where you can have a lot of leeway within the simulation versus yeah. modeling uh, aesthetic argument and be fine and just have you know a different way you run games and a different GM. But there are instances where it goes too far, like way too far. I mean, yeah. I mean to use the I'm not going to call it the perennial whipping boy of RPGs because it would probably enjoy being a whipping boy. But uh, to use the worst possible example of something, Fatal, in addition to being just morally repugnant and inexcusable, is quite literally a fetish game. It doesn't care about modeling anything else in the game nearly so much as it cares about modeling sick, sick... disgusting sexual violence and like uh and it makes a game that is unplayable a game that is in fact only worthwhile in that it is there to beat up as the the yeah no one feels bad making fun of fatal as we've said before right but like yeah it is quite literally a fetishized game right it doesn't care if your sword works or if you have any fun at table or if you calculate because i've seen people who've tried to play it on play by post with stuff and it's just it's just agony. Like yeah. it's just agony to do anything in the game because it's so broken because it wants to do this one creepy thing endlessly well. Yeah. Uh yeah. The thing is uh yeah, so, so 
yeah, F- Fatal is is an easy target, but it deserves it. It deserves yeah. every bit of its combination. <laughs> yeah, and, uh, it, but I mean, it having looked at the rules a little, like I remember looking at these playbooks, and they have the character sheets posted, and they have things like attributes for spatial recognition, and just like every kind of uh, like three types of dexterity, like hand-eye coordination, and like just multiple layers and layers of redundant stats. So you would like. Uh, I mean, it would have the anal circumference, but it also have like your blood type and every every other. I mean, dozens and dozens of stats. I mean, characters had primary stats, they had secondary stats. It was very. And the thing is, from that play by post game, it was on something awful forums. And yeah, was, which uh, is, is yeah. hilarious to read. Yeah, because it was it was played for last because these these were basically making fun of it while they were playing it. Yeah, because like one character made a, a they were hate playing RPG. They were hate playing an RPG, which is a different episode entirely. Yeah. Uh, uh, it, it we will have to do that with Rocky and Bullwinkle, <laughs> uh, hand pup, angry hand puppets. I yeah, I want to play that. <laughs> I don't... Uh, so I actually read like I was reading the Warren Spector Wikipedia or some article about him. And he's talking about how the fuck are we going to make this game? They're drinking at a bar and like and then it's like somebody said hand puppets. That's how we'll do it. And that's After what the we fifth shot. It yeah. sounded like a good idea. <laughs> Apparently. <laughs> I uh, just like in that golden era of the the early '80s when RPGs weren't what they are today. Like they they hadn't been labeled, they hadn't been stigmatized like they are yet. Like right in the right in the beginning, and so like yeah, it's a mainstream product. We'll have it for kids. Party, Bullwinkle, like oh yes, yeah, so well go- like yeah, talking about the '80s stuff. Yeah. Auto duel, like yeah. not just not just the fetishization of auto duel rules, yeah. but the fact that like. They included auto duel in that one scenario, to- <laughs> Zombie Town USA. Yeah, Zombie Town USA, which had nothing to do with like Mad Max road racing. Like that is fetishization. No, it is- if you read it, it's they said it in the auto duel universe as well. Like in normal America, it's just a B movie with uh, uh, that's not really even about zombies. But in auto duel universe, it's just like some asshole doing unethical cloning experiments. And yet they are totally incompatible thematically yeah, as narratives. And that's the thing. Like, that is fetishization in the psychologically diagnosable sense. You take this fetish and you expand it in your mind to encompass everything to the point where you can't... So, like, to some for somebody to get their RPG rocks off... They have an auto duel fetish. You got to have warring cars in there, yeah. and they included it in there. Well, and that like, was the marketing thing. That was that was. I like, guess, but that's when it gets unhealthy. <laughs> like that's that's when the, the kids are all into the auto duel. Yeah, that, yeah, that's when like Phoenix Command gets yeah. unhealthy. Like that's when it gets to be like you need to go see and talk to somebody <laughs> when you're so into your firearm rules that you forget like everything else involved in war, like. It's literally war. Like well, that's the thing. Well, to be fair, role playing games are do derive from war games. And in those early days, and even in by the mid eighties, a lot of people just saw them as a way to do war games, just with one character per, instead of controlling a unit or an army. And so F- Phoenix Command was pretty much like, yeah, let's do Vietnam. Only you're, you know, we're doing platoon. But even war games with yeah. like miniatures and stuff. Yeah. Don't get into the level of Phoenix Command. They do. Yes, are they do, and then that's still a mistake. Like, because campaign in North Africa is what yeah. I assume you're talking about. Like that's individual, there's a lot of them that are very similar to that. Individual too. strands of pasta going to your troops. And, well, no, it's just the water consumption rate was higher because they boiled it for spaghetti. Okay, yeah, that's great. <laughs> but you no did general in existence on the planet has ever planned that far down. That's just not how bureaucracies work. 
Like, it's flat out not how bureaucracies work. You give a broad order, yeah. people further down worry more about those details, people further down worry right. more. Too. That's why sergeants run the armies, and not everything. Like, it's just flat out not how any human organization functions like nobody like no ceo of some company is individually tracking the paper clips his office workers are using and yet there are games in which the equivalent structure is is maintained like can you imagine how bad that would be if your boss came by and like counted your pencils i'm sure we're gonna get some comments and, to that and stuff like yeah like and so that's what i'm saying like it's yeah. a fetish it leaves reality behind Sometimes, and the idea of what a game should be, because it gets fixated on this single thing it wants to do. Uh, I mean, and, and yeah, there, there, there. During gameplay, I would certainly agree with you, uh, because again, it kills the momentum. Yeah, and that that there's nothing less fun than everyone looking up their rule book and figuring out what the fuck, how is this event going to take place? Uh, but. I think in there is there are edge cases. There are some cases where these kind of rules are useful for the GM to prep. Uh, and I think like a lot of these wandering encounter tables, a lot of like these travel time tables, are conceptually useful to figure out like for the GM to imagine in his mind's eye what going from this place to this place entails. How are they going to encounter things? Uh, what what kind of condition are the characters going to be in when they get there? Uh, they're, they're, you know, are they going to be healthy or exhausted or whatever? And uh, like again, I, w- I actually like went not only use the Eclipse Way stuff. I looked up NASA simul or not, you know, planetary simulation to figure out how what's the difference from this celestial object to this celestial yeah. object, and figured out the travel time. Oh, it'll take six weeks for them to do that. Well, that'll be that's useful for this scenario. And but you know. Those kind of rules are kind of are useful, but the thing is, for a lot of these games, it's hard for the game developer to figure out what's going to be useful for that purpose versus, you know, what's going to wind up killing the table because we're figuring out where the grenade bounced to or whatever. So, uh, yeah, and so I it's mean, kind of a conundrum. Like, how do you how do you solve that? How do you resolve that? I, I don't know. And as I said before, like, I don't think simulation. I don't. I'm not saying everything needs to be fate accelerated in Cthulhu Dark. <laughs> like. Yeah. Uh, I'm not saying that at all. I think there is a serious bonus to it in many cases and adds verisimilitude to the fiction of the piece. Um, it can do all those kind of things. What what I my my thesis in this is that when you see a game that goes so extreme to the one side of the spectrum, like mm-hmm. Phoenix Command or Continuum or something like yeah. that, I think it reveals something interesting about the RPG as an art form in general. Mm. Like, because as as the extreme case, I think it reveals something about the numerous things that are in the sane side of the spectrum. Yeah. Just like certain forms of insanity uh, reveal interesting truths about the functioning human mind. Like, um, so I, I should say I should say I'm not against all simulation, but yeah, it, it, that, I think playtesting is really important on that kind of stuff. Yeah. Uh, to make sure that you're going at speed at the table, and, and I think maintaining speed of play at a game is is very important. People use the word flow, which I hate, uh, but I, I think that more ma- or less than paradigm. Uh, more, infinitely more than paradigm. <laughs> Where is the flow at? Like, if you say my story doesn't flow, what yeah. page do I turn to? Yeah. It's a useless term. Uh, but they talk about table flow and things like that. But the speed of play, like. 
the speed at which you're moving through the narrative, especially at points where you need to move quickly for suspense and things like that. Yeah. That's, I think that's key to making sure your game isn't bogging down yeah. in, in these certain scenarios. Like, yeah. And that, that's what I've learned trying to get red markets to work with things like that. And I'm leaving out huge... It's an economic horror game, but I'm leaving out huge swaths of economics that are going to bore people to death, like right. uh, irrational behavior models, which would be secondary models on top of supply-demand models. You know, like, the equations could go... It could be the Phoenix Command, and you could just be working for the Federal Reserve or... Uh, the NASDAQ or something, and then there are zombies, like, uh, sometimes. But that sometimes. would not be fun, like... I, don't, I mean, as a computer game, that would be... I would buy that. That would be, <laughs> like, video game dev plus zombies, real zombies, that would be... I, I mean, I don't know, I Kickstarter? You're gonna yeah. stop hunting zombies and just start uh, trading on inflation on Bounty? Oh, yeah, uh, Jesus. I mean, like, that sounds awesome. <laughs> Manipulating currency exchange, yeah. But uh, <laughs> why, why don't, instead of beating up on, you know, uh, uh, Phoenix Command and Fatal, why don't we talk about games that are, like, currently popular? Like, yeah. Uh, and, I mean, we've already mentioned Eclipse Phase and its flaws. Uh, Call of Cthulhu is a little... We've, Talk about what like GURPS. Well, I mean, what what systems are more familiar to you? Like, well, I uh, think GURPS. I think GURPS does a good job because it's so modular. Like, GURPS will let you be as simulationist as you want to be, right? uh, Upward into a level of total insanity, right? uh, Where you're just tacking on more and more rule systems. Uh, But it will also let you move faster. Well, I, I think the problem is with GURPS is. The reason, because it, it's meant to be all thanks to all people, yeah, is that they have so many things on there that if you want to run a GURPS like game, it's hard to figure out what to cut away. And as players, it's figure out what hard what to spend on. Like Tom started up a GURPS game, he ran one session, and we did character creation. And for me, like GURP, Tom's obviously not going to run a super, super simulationist game where we're tracking fatigue points and shit like that, yeah, but. When I'm looking at the character sheet, I was just like, what the fuck? How do I make my 100-point character be kind of useful and blah, blah, blah? And I, I picked, like, 30 skills because they all sounded kind of useful for my character concept. Like, I'll take smuggler. I'll take merchant. I'll take stealth. I'll take fast draw ammo, fast draw pistol, you know? Yeah. Uh, and so I wound up with this shitload of skills. And yeah, I don't know if I'm missing out, like, you know, I know, for example, people in my game, base raiders, they don't know, like, I actually wrote a character creation survival guide on the website saying, like, here's what you need to avoid going crazy, getting killed, or, like, having your reputation ruined. And that's, you know, to, to protect health composure and reputation damage. And I don't know if everyone picks up on that, but, like, there's that kind of thing where people yeah. make characters that are kind of really crappy because they don't understand the system because there's too much complexity there. And so I think GURPS is kind of problematic because of that because even if you're doing rules light the character sheet's the same either way and like the basic book doesn't say like here's the basic stuff here's the advanced stuff they just list them in all skills in alphabetical order and it's just kind of like holy shit well i think uh, strange fate and and base raiders in particular is a pretty good example because yeah. like it is based on fate yeah um which is could not be more popular at yeah. this point, and that's it. But Fate, like, as it's written, Fate Core or Fate Accelerated, is somewhat allergic to this issue, like, or immune, if you want to put it. Like, yeah. it is completely on the other side of the spectrum yeah. as avoiding that. But as you were talking about in Unspeakable lately, that does make it problematic for horror in that, like, yeah. 
the sense of deprivation and exhaustion and things and that lack of control necessary in order to feel fear yeah. is somewhat hard to even generate in the fate system. The But base raiders is more complex, but I don't think it approaches the level of fetishization because you have pre-made skills. You don't have to go through all the trappings for every single thing. But with all those skills and with the power tiers, it makes the game more tactically interesting. Like, if I'm facing someone that, what's the highest tier? Ascendant or something? Uh, godlike. Godlike. If I'm facing someone godlike or ascendant or a higher tier than me, yeah. I need to strategize more than if I'm just, you know, laser blasting a random security guard. And I think that is interesting and it adds a, it, it adds verisimilitude and uh, conflict to the narrative, which is great. Um, and so that is a more simulationist of like how superpowers might actually work yeah. in, in a real world uh, with endless variables than maybe fate is. But uh, I think that adds to the game and make it it's a specific game yeah. uh, as opposed to a different game. Yeah. Uh, and so that's good. That's just a matter of what you want your game to be. Yeah. Uh, and, but then there are levels where it's just, you know, you are either have no rules and you're just, you know, make believe or you have just completely lost your mind on a specific set of rules. So, um, yeah, no, that's good. Uh, so I go. I think D and D is interesting because it's endlessly yeah. struggling with this issue. Like it is, it goes back and forth. Yeah, it's endlessly wrestling well, with think, how deep it wants individual parts of the. I rules think third to be. and fourth edition were about as complex as each other, but in different ways. Yeah. Uh, the the third ed, it was kind of third and Pathfinder both have the thing is if you're a spellcaster, it's a much more complex game than if you're non spellcaster. But if you're a more complex character, you're more powerful. Like just flat out. Wizard spellcasters are better than fighters. Yeah, D and D next is uh, fourth solved that by making all characters equally complex, which you know people didn't like, or some people didn't like. I I mean we I ran fifty sessions of it, so clearly I hate the system now. <laughs> well, it's like equally complex from a meta perspective because yeah. like in terms of like simulation, what we're talking about, like I cannot tell you what it looks like. Those. 90% of those feats in there. Yeah. I, I don't know. Powers. Like, yeah, your phase shift example from Dark yeah. Sun. I'm like, yeah, but what does that do? <laughs> it does It does numbers. <laughs> and I'm like, yeah, but what physically, what does it look like? I can move from this square to this square and do numbers. Like, <laughs> it, like yeah, that's not very verisimilitude. It's not really, it's it's the rule for the rule's sake. Yeah. Um, I think Iron Heroes is more simulationist in that regard in that you are a muscle wizard. <laughs> but I know what your muscle wizardly specifically looks like every yeah. single time. I know what that move looks like. I can see it in my head. It uses imagery to convey the move. Yeah. Uh, and yeah, there are rules to support that, which is great. But uh, yeah. Uh, and and again, with Pathfinder, um, you have the thing where everyone is getting to be more and more complex as they get up in levels. And... I think a lot of the complexity, again, is in, like, Pathfinder's probably better about it. When Third Ed was really bad about, like, here's a monster. He has 20 spell-like abilities. And we're not going to explain how he uses those. He's just going to have, he can do this, this, and this, and this, and this, and this, and this. And Fourth Ed was a much better in that respect in terms of, like, here's what a monster will actually do in a fight. You know? And I think Pathfinder's learned from that, too, uh, in their more recent things. To a certain degree. Uh, but uh, next tries to solve the problem by removing the complexity. Everyone's 
about this. It's going much more back like the second edition, very much uh, simplify, simplify. Uh, yeah, and, and I mean, even when this is an extreme, it's good to note the difference between like how quickly it wants to model it versus how accurately it wants to model it because it tells you where your game designer's priorities are. Like, yeah. I find social combat very interesting in games, and that's why I'm trying to model it and stuff like that. Because actual real-world rhetoric is infinitely complex, and yeah. it's got... But if you are on opposed sides of an argument and you are trying to convince a third party, it is as tactical as any fight you're going to see. Uh, but like, you'll find games that will have 50 different kinds of stab you could use, <laughs> and then charisma for anything else which is why i in those games i play a liar because lies are infinitely more powerful than any weapon i could possibly have uh but it's why like in red markets i want you to have like your your entire cadre of different social skills needs to be used for different mechanical benefits to get a job yeah like and so you're you are literally engaging in a social combat where you make yeah. tactical decisions on what to do next but at the same time, you're also having a role-playing challenge to do it. Because that's where my priority's at in that game. So, yeah. like, when you look at, like, things that are just hand-waved, like, oh, bone solvent, no, definitely, you can come inside. <laughs> uh, versus things that are, like, rigidly modeled. Yeah. Uh, it's going to tell you what this game wants you to do at the table. Yeah. Uh, I mean, you know... Uh I like that, and uh, I, I was just thinking about another thing about D and D is that, in particular, they kind of fetishized magic items, and in a very, very commoditized, very way. Yeah. Especially in third and fourth edition, where there's literally like, especially by fourth edition, you literally like, you get X amount of gold per level. You use those to buy items at the magic item shop, and like they said, oh no, you don't have to do like that. You could do this instead. But everybody wound up doing the default thing because it's just easier that way. And oh yeah, if we want to talk about like commodity and RPGs yeah. and the uh, the subtext, the pro capitalism subtext of almost every RPG, like that's a different episode. But yeah, yeah. yeah it is very fetishistic. Like, ooh, I yeah. want that. Oh, I want that sword yeah. in the window and the shopping stuff. Yeah, yeah. and the shopping, which and- is I think one of the big sub hobbies within RPGs is just shopping for imaginary yeah. elves. Yeah, in your elf exactly. games. So. But, like, yeah, I, I've recognized that, and that is, like, really interesting to me from an English nerdy critical yeah. theory reader perspective. And that's why, for Red Markets, I'm reading nothing but Marxist <laughs> literature for quotes for the book, because it, it's going to be, like, all of the bad parts need of to capitalism. Throw some Thorsten like, there too. yes, I am going to buy that gear that makes this game easier, but I am going to be reminded that it's driving me insane because my kid's not eating, you know, like, <laughs> or, or vice versa. Like, I'm yeah. going to feed little Timmy morality pet and go out into the wasteland armed with a pointy stick. Like, uh, so, yeah, you know, that that's a different episode in itself. But, yes, that sort of capitalist, yeah. unexamined, like, consumerist idea does find its way into a lot of RPG yeah. item rules. And, and not like, even in a physical like item, like in literal shopping, but I think like in some games like Exalted, are you familiar with that? I am not. Okay. You've heard of it at all? Or not? Uh, is that a superhero game? It's uh, kind of. Uh, it's okay. a White Wolf game. It's their anime game, basically. It's a oh, fantasy okay. universe. It uses the same kind of di- D10 dice pool system that the World of Darkness uses, which I know you love uh, so much. 
<laughs> but characters have uh, powers, and they get more and more anime-ish as the characters level up in powers. Like they're, uh, I'm not very familiar with the setting. I have the main core, one edition, uh, an old copy, of the the first or second edition of it. And but literally at the same point, they could like, I dodge. I dodge the universe, you know, I dodge any, the concept of being attacked, you know, like it gets a very abstract godlike level of power, uh, as the characters, uh, become more and more powerful. So you, you throwing mountains at them and then yeah. you parry the sun, you know, or whatever. <laughs> and, or you, you, and their social combats where you're like, I am the moon. Oh, you're clearly the moon. So, you know, and, and that sort of thing. So, but that's a kind of another kind of shopping fetch because like it's a pretty large game line and there's a lot of books that are like here's player book X and it's not items but here's your cool new powers you could be a secret member of this secret society with access with these special you know ninja techniques or whatever and you know or you could be a werewolf or you could be a vampire werewolf or you could be a vampire werewolf whose part got yeah mom yeah and on and on and on and on and i think that's another kind of fetishization uh of rules player facing though yeah not dm face or gm yeah but i mean since you got me all riled up about this uh (laughs) another thing to look at with this kind of stuff that i find really interesting is the extent to which you are your stuff in an RPG. Yeah. So like in, in Eclipse Phase... Or you your li- powers. And yeah, in Eclipse Phase, you literally are your stuff. Like yeah. your body is a thing you own. Commodity, yeah. That is a commodity. Um, and the extent to like you are your stuff and things like that. But the extent to which it's unexamined in games, I just find endlessly <laughs> interesting. Like games in which like your stats derived from your stuff are so supremely important and dominate so much of your character sheet and in which your life of the person using that like is is unexamined or vice versa in games yeah. in which you are just like fate in fate which is the in which opposite. you are powered solely by force of personality yeah. and are in many ways just immaterial like a gun, not, a gun is literally a cosmetic accessory yeah you're incorporeal you fight with your spirit rather yeah. than anything else uh, and I find that interestingly interesting, uh, which is why in Red Markets, I try and make one negate the other. Like, yeah. yes, you are your stuff, and your life is terrible, or vice versa, and you have nothing. Like, um, uh, so yeah, yeah. I mean, I yet again. So I, I didn't even really think about that until you brought it yeah. up, and you were bringing up the commodity factor of D and D and things like that. Okay. So. I, I think one one thing to take from this rules fetish argument and looking at these extreme examples is that it's an interesting way to have a discussion about game design yeah. and like where your priorities lie in game design or in playing games. Because yeah. uh, I mean, yeah, it's always good to look at the the negative space, the yeah. the extremes to see where you know the sort of assumptions are laid bare. Yeah, in the insanity. Uh, yeah, that's a really good way of putting it. And same way I like to watch the room. Like, <laughs> Tommy Russell's got a new thing coming to out. Appreciate it. Then, really? Yeah, there's a sitcom apparently that. He's oh, doing. I just have. I have a friend, and his wife has not seen the room, so we need to do. Holy shit! We need to do a room view. Oh yeah, no, bring bring all the booze, uh, <laughs> and the footballs, and the yeah. and the and the. Fun. But I learned more about film from watching the room. Yeah. Then a million. Good oh, you know, Greg Sestero has a book out now about his experience. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. I need I I need to read that. Yeah. So uh, there. Um, I mean, and that, the, the negative space idea is a really good way of thinking about it. Like, what is your game not doing? Or what is your game not about? Or like, um, what are the under unexamined assumptions of the game? Yeah. Uh, in other words, and 
So in practical terms, though, mm-hmm. like if you're not a game designer, if you're not trying to do something, if you're just running a game or playing a game, uh, what does all of this rules fetishization mean? Uh, one, just think about how you're when you're actually running a game. When does the game screech to a halt? Yeah. What is the thing that fucks it up? Is it the vehicle collision, or is it doing something unusual? Is it uh, the you know? Is it at the end when people are doing character level up or whatever? I mean, are deciding wh- games you want to run for your group? Yeah, are games you want to play with your group? Yeah. Like, look at those points where the speed of play drags. Yeah, are you find yourself not having fun and you can't find anything the GM doing wrong doing that? Yeah. And like, once you examine what those parts are and what they have in common, and is it because they are trying to simulate something in the genre fiction or in life to the point that you find it? absurd yeah. or not work not getting to the point and then you're just you're quickly developing your own aesthetic for what rpgs you like like yeah. thinking about this is a good way to decide like if not what to buy once you've read it what you want to go into or what the priorities are or things yeah. like that i i mean for me like it, it, you know uh, other things if it's not necessarily a rule issue if it's not something something like the common thing is people stopping to look up the rule books, figure out what the fuck this new spell is, this new player's ability does, or vehicle collision, or grenade scatter die, or whatever it is. Is it when does the game? Is it a type of scenario? And if so, if you're like trying to run a mystery in Pathfinder, you know, and the group is just uh, just staring off into space, playing on their phones because nobody's got a fucking clue about what's going on in this fancy world. Maybe try it in a different system. Try and incorporate house rules. Try and say, "I'm just going to give you the clues. You guys, you know, figure it out. You know, make it a yeah. gumshoe type thing." Pathfinder is not a game trying to simulate procedural investigation. I know they have those kind of scenarios. Yeah, they do, but it's it's a game that is not designed mechanically to do so. It. House rules. I'm yeah, sure. yeah, yeah. It's not Trail of Cthulhu. Like no. Trail of Cthulhu wants you to investigate and come up with ways to investigate and spend yeah. points to investigate and Pathfinder wants you to find out where you need to go to kill the monster <laughs> like and that's fine but yeah. you need to decide what your what your group is into yeah. and stuff so uh, if you've been listening to this episode uh, and if you have some ideas on like where your group fucks up or in terms of mm-hmm. slows down screeches at all yeah. what, what, what's your rules fetish uh, so leave a comment or post on our Facebook group or a message board and uh, we'll, we'll ha- try and answer them probably maybe have some feedback for next episode yeah. something like that so uh, yeah so next up because Tom's not here there's no letter from him uh, he <laughs> he's off you know sympathizing briefly with people's problems before moving on I know it's <laughs> it's not even really dirty works and no one has to do it but it's his vacation so uh, he's gonna do that so in, uh, but next up we have shout outs and then we will have anecdotes And we're back. Uh, that was some good music that I haven't chosen yet. But I'm sure it'll be great. Mm. <laughs> pod safe music. Uh, I, I I literally go it to sounded royalty free. Yeah, no, well, no, pod safe music is different than royalty. Oh, oh, I'm sorry. It's music that is specifically cleared to be allowed to be used uh, for podcasts. Oh, and no, I didn't hear that in the yeah. subtleties. I'm not. I'm yeah, not a trained no. musician. No, no, clearly or a producer. <laughs> uh, so yeah, no. So uh, shout outs. We got we got some. Uh, I'll just go and jump in. Uh, first off. 
uh, a nice anthology of horror and fantasy stories uh, called Sword Mythos uh, by Innsmouth Free Press, I believe. Uh, it is I, I, actually I got a review copy uh, a couple months ago and I read it. Uh, this then we did episode 100, so no shoutouts, and then episode 101, which was the uh, Better Angels no postmortem, yeah, postmortem. So <laughs> I haven't had time to review until now, and it's a great anthology and. It, it covers a lot. It's not just generic Conan. I mean, it's like sword and sorcery type style fiction, but adding Cthulhu mythos elements. Or uh, so it's Matt, so Robert E. Howard meets Lovecraft, but they do not do the kind of D and D ish uh, Hyperborea kind of Conan type settings. They choose like different areas, and each hit author chose different areas of history and time and so you have like africa you have uh the aztecs uh you have ancient china uh you have one set in the biblical like uh the tribes of israel fighting each other oh god yeah that doesn't it, need any help from the mythos to be it, terrifying well, no it's worse with the mythos <laughs> it's pretty terrifying and then also carcosa there's one set in carcosa yeah that's the one you didn't like right no i love you didn't I li- care for that one? i like that one uh, and then they have ones like Age of Pirates, uh, Golden Age of Pirates. And what I love is so many of the stories, uh, some of them are genuinely freaky. Some of them I, I kind of like, eh. There are a couple of eh stories, but a lot of them, uh, about half of them, I think, are written as though they're like the 18th chapter of an ongoing serial. And you're just like, yeah, you know this guy, this pirate guy, uh, you know, Captain Barbados or whatever. And he's just going on his quest to do, and oh no, he finds Mythos things. And all. <laughs> so they just throw you in the deep. And it's it's just a great uh, read. And some of the stories, like the, the biblical one, the one set in ancient China, which I think is the last story of the book, uh, are particularly stand out in my head. And I can't think of particular names right now because I'm lazy. Uh, I didn't look it up, but the, it just yeah, Sword Mythos. It's a really, it's a fun read. Uh, certainly a, a good read if you want to read good mythos stories uh, that are not set in stereotypical settings. Uh, this is a good read. Yeah. So uh, some are horror. Some some are definitely much more fantasy action versus horror, and some are much more horrific. So it's there's widely varying in tone. So that's if you don't like that, and keep that in mind. But if you like, I mean, you know. Anyways, yeah, it is what it is. Um, my book review. Uh, I recently finally got around to reading Delta Green's Tales of Failed Anatomy mm. um, by Detweiler, um, and I'd, I'd read many of the stories before because I'm sort of obsessively follow his blog, and he, he'd release some of them for free. Yeah, uh, previously before they got collected, but um, it's it's interesting, like because I think. Tynes in his introduction of the book hits it on the head is that Dennis Detweiler is better at writing fiction than he has any right to be like for uh, for an RPG tie in fiction about you know FBI agents fighting fishmen uh, it is sort of absurdly literary at points and really well constructed and uh yeah i mean if if it falls into any genre tropes it's that delta green becomes its own genre like you can bet the agent is encountering some horrible thing and about to either go insane or kill themselves so they go less insane or be killed uh and and it's gonna happen uh but but other than that like they're arranged chronologically and they're extremely well written and with good imagery and unique ideas uh 
but yeah, it is much like Ty says in his introduction, is that like there's no there's no reason that you need a Murakami influence for your, you know, RPG tie in horror fiction. And yet with Detweiler <laughs> you will find it. So uh, there's a Japanese guy drinking whiskey and listening to jazz? Yes, yeah, oh, pretty well. much. Okay. <laughs> I'm in, so. Uh, so if it's not a loath shot, that's just a bonus. <laughs> so uh, did beautiful women hit on him without him really doing anything? <laughs> I'm sorry. Am I am I typecasting? Oh, maybe a little bit. A little bit. Uh, next up, I'd like to bring up a game Caleb brought to our group, uh, Mice and Mystics. Yeah. Uh, from Plat Hat Games, I believe. Yes, uh, Plat Hat Games. And it's kind of a board game, cooperative board game in the vein of HeroQuest. And uh, games of that nature, or Dungeon of the Descent, although there's no GM adversarial thing, but uh, it's basically we're du- we're fantasy dudes turned into mice. We got to go save the king, and yeah, but we're mice. But so we're mice. It's difficult. Yeah, <laughs> so we fight things like cockroaches and rats and uh, spiders. Yeah, it's really interesting. the The book, the games are divided into chapters, so you yeah. have scenarios. Uh, you only use certain map tiles for scenarios, yeah. and map tiles are interesting because you you're mice, yeah. because you can flip them. So yeah. not only can you move from one scenario, tile to the X, you can go climb up into the kitchen or climb down into yeah. the pipes and things like that. Um, there's encounters for every map tile. There's specific victory scenarios. Um, you have a variable level of place, and you can string them all into a campaign. So like... The campaign rules are certain cards and certain characters that don't unlock until you've done specific things. Yeah. Um, what I find most interesting about it is that there's side quests that will achieve later things in later scenarios. Like, so for example, we played the first scenario. You guys tackled the side quest. Yeah. And you got an ally that will appear later. Nice. In a scenario. Um, so yeah, we'll I, have to figure that out. Yeah. So I find it that really interesting, and it is con- it is sort of complex. I'm still learning to run it, but it's not like. Arkham Horror complex. Like, if well, you, we again Arkham Horror. I think the base game. We we've added. I well, still say it's a little less than complex. Oh no, it's definitely it's definitely yes. But we we it's the Arkham Horror that we play. We've added like four expansions to it, and we, we're just running with all of them. So like, yeah, no, I understand. Yeah. Uh, but I I, I I I my friend plays Arkham Horror yeah. as well. And he's just got base system, and it's still it, far it less complex and easier to pick up. It is, <laughs> but I think we've kind of doubled the complexity yeah. in terms of the yeah. amount of expansions. Uh, uh, so that's good. Uh, it's like fifty bucks on Amazon, but okay. it'll be like seven. It's got great production value. It'll be like seven or eight. Die counters, three D miniatures. Yeah, uh, really good the, miniatures. Exception yeah. of Tilda, <laughs> who is a little overboard. Because <laughs> the art in her under thing doesn't like makes her. Uh, yeah, this is a bit of yours. So yeah. there's a cleric mouse yeah. character who's basically the healer of the party and bashes things with a mace. Yeah, full blown cleric. Bog standard yeah. RPG stuff, um, and the and she looks fine in the uh, in the art for her, but in the miniature, this mouse is just stacked, <laughs> just like beyond all reason, just like double She's D's. Got back problems, yeah, it's it's a little obscene, like yeah. And it's it'd be one thing if they drew the character that way, then I'd be. But the character does not look like that no, in the artwork for the game. It's just the miniature. It's just, yeah. but damn, it's out there, <laughs> and it's odd. So all right, uh, I was not the first one to bring this up. We played this game with a professor yeah. friend of mine, and his wife was just like, "What the hell is up with that mouse?" <laughs> <laughs> uh, miniature designs gotta 
miniature she, she sculptor's got done. a sculpt. Yeah, 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 I guess. So they uh, they want, but it's a good game. Yeah, despite Busty Mice. <laughs> <laughs> or if you're that kind of gamer, because of Busty Mice. <laughs> <laughs> Not that there's anything wrong with that. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. This is the episode about fetishes. So. <laughs> yeah. All right. Uh, and, but and uh, so my next one uh, is actually also has animal people in it, uh, although not quite as uh, uh, titillating. Uh, it is uh, a video game uh, I picked up on the Steam Summer Sale called The Year Walk. It is originally an iOS puzzle game, but they ported it to PC, and it was a pretty good port. Uh, I beat it last night. It's a pretty short playthrough, depending on how good you are in puzzles and how uh, or how quick you are to use their hint guide system i would very like no very quick very quick <laughs> i'm very impatient i'm a horrible person but it's based on a obscure bit of scandinavian folklore uh where it's once a year or during certain times of the year uh during certain holidays like like christmas uh you could perform a ritual to basically see a year into the future and there's kind of a vision quest dream walk kind of thing. So what you do is you, you spend the entire day by yourself, away from all people. You don't eat, you don't drink, you don't light a fire. And this is like in Norway or Sweden or someplace, so you're fucking cold, <laughs> especially if it's winter. And then at midnight, you go out. And there's all kinds of creatures that are lurking in the forests at night. And so you have to deal with these creatures. It's very, very challenging. So you have to go to this uh, church. You have to do it before, and then go to the cemetery and perform a certain kind of dance or walk around it in a certain pattern. Uh, and if you do that, and then you'll see visions of the year to come. Who will die? Who will fall in love? Will you be wealthy? And that kind of thing. And so the game is you go in on a year walk it's night it's the forest and there's all these creatures from scandinavian folklore like the angel maker uh who is this creepy motherfucker as you can imagine <laughs> and the uh church grim and uh the brood horse or something like that uh it's just yeah no it's very got great music very kind of mellow and or it's kind of it alternates between being kind of like uh um yeah, what was that webcomic we read ago a while ago? The shamanistic noir. Oh yeah, that was a couple of years ago. Yeah, yeah, uh, it was really good. Yeah, but it reminds me a little bit of that. Yeah, that from the way you describe it. Yeah, no, it's 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 a neat little game, and it actually apparently you beat it once, then you can play through it again and get a different kind of uh, unlock in it. Different. I don't know. I'm gonna try it again because again, yeah. it only takes like an hour or two to play through, depending on how quick you are. A couple hours at most, even if you're really slow solving puzzles, uh, because you can kind of brute force some of them. Because it's one of those point and click kind of adventure yeah. games um so that's really cool anyways uh i really need a game and so you check that out ios or pc uh maybe even max uh i don't know uh so you watched a documentary uh yeah it's on netflix streaming yeah. so i bring it up so i've been reading a lot of um uh zizek zizek yeah i i have trouble saying his name everyone uh, does. Show, shows me how intellectual i am but um <laughs> Anyway, you know, very prominent cultural theorist, maybe Marxist. the most famous living critical Mar theorist nowadays, because he's very he's very public. Yeah, uh, and you know, talked at Occupy and so on. Yeah, writes lots of books, you know, things of that <laughs> nature. Uh, but he's got this uh, documentary on Netflix now called "Pervert's Guide to Ideology," um, and it's base it's basically you know Marxist ideology and critiques of capitalism and things like that. And it gets very serious, you know, at points he talks about. 
um, the Holocaust and, and, and things about and anti-Semitism and you know things like that. But he is like doing full-blown cultural criticism. So literally, the first thing he examines in the documentary is they live. Like the and it's specifically the twenty minute fight scene between Rowdy Roddy Piper and, and Keith David. Keith David. Yeah. Uh, so you know, like he's kind of hip yeah. to what the kids are into. Uh, so for a Marxist, uh, yeah, uh, even Marxists can recognize a beautifully choreographed <laughs> one of for the ages. You know. Anyway, no, but he 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 actually like incorporates and justifies the. What he's caused ridiculous length of the fight yeah. into his sort of ideological critique, and then he goes after uh, the sound of music and, and brings up some things that I'd never considered before about that, which you know are kind of interesting. Um, he bring and then he talks about you know some uh, I think Ukrainian filmmakers and stuff I never heard of before, but it's it's very interesting. It's a very interesting um, critique, and it's very watchable for being what it is. Um, and then you can read the McSweeney's piece yeah. about uh, him introducing you to the gym and laugh harder. Uh, but yeah, it, it's very interesting and accessible uh, as opposed to reading, you know, 140 pages of, you know, talking about the cultural other. Yeah. Uh, or which five is, pages of Adorno, and I'm like, I'm done, I'm out. Which, if you're into, which I am. Uh, is great because I'm reading through his stuff now, but yeah. it's it's a good movie to watch too. So. All right, yeah, no, I'll, I'll, now you've sold me just with the opening, like the, they yeah, he it. literally just opens they live. Yeah. So. All right, no, I'd watch that any day of the week. Uh, and speaking of fine uh, and cheerful and uplifting uh, works of art from Europe, <laughs> a movie we we all uh, uh, you and Aaron watched recently. I got on Blu-ray. Uh, very, very cheerful movie. Very, very... Um, I, I would say almost propagandistic <laughs> in how it, patriotic it was. Uh, no, I'm sorry. It's m- many wars ago. It's a, a movie about world uh, Italy's experience in World War One. It was... The darkest. It is the just. This the is a most glancy. Not- this is a glancy recommendation. Yes. This like, is, uh, thank you, Adam's guy Glancy. And when Glancy recommends a war movie. You go find that war it is, movie. It is about as nihilistic as a war film as I could imagine. Yeah. Uh, outside of all the characters just killing themselves in the opening scene, I can't see how more nihilistic it could be. And yeah, uh, basically, an authoritarian. Like, <coughs> pardon me. Basically, yeah. Um, an Italian officer <laughs> systematically kills not just an officer, the general. Yeah, the general systematically kills his own men. Yeah. And you follow the men as he is, yeah, follows murdering one. them with terrible, stupid World War One battle yeah. tactics. It, it's interesting. Like it starts with one lieutenant, of course. Eventually, uh, spoiler alert: uh, he dies halfway through the movie. But as he's dying, he's like, "No, let's go and kill the general." <laughs> yeah, and you're like, "Please kill yeah. the general!" Like, no, of course not. It's not that kind of movie. But uh, interestingly enough, I mentioned this to Glancy, and he said, "Oh yeah, the general that they based that guy on, he was relieved of command after like he got <laughs> like even the Italians apparently the Italian high command had like limits on how many soldiers you could get butchered." Um, but the entire movie is just the insanity of institutional ideology and like uh, just allergy to logic and the outside world and just consequence of action. Yeah, but, I mean, it's very interesting because you root for the Germans more than you do the, they're the, the good, Italian yeah, yeah. officers. Yeah. Like, they are literally 
more way so, worse than the enemy. Like, yeah. Uh, I think the best, I mean, and you could do an entire movie uh, just in one scene, which you pointed out, which was the medical tribunal, which were the, the, this panel of officers yeah. were examining wounded soldiers and inevitably judging them all to be like, oh, self-inflicted wound, you're going back to the front. Yeah. You're go, you're not, you we're going to put you in jail or we're going to shoot you or yeah, whatever yeah. else. And you blew your own leg off. Like, yeah. yeah. Literally that level of like, oh, there's no powder burn on his wound, which means, it, well, normally that means that wasn't. A it means cl- he put a pillow in front yeah, of yeah. his till before he shot Yeah, or a piece of bread or whatever. Yeah, yeah. And so it's just, holy shit. And the Blu-ray version of it is very well. They cleaned it up quite. Yeah, but, it's a pretty amazing yeah. restoration. Yeah, it looks really good. Um, so you can see. Like these poor guys that put her on body armor, World One era vintage body armor. They look like like budget Daleks or Cybermen. <laughs> budget Daleks? Yeah, man, that's bad. You saw them? I know, but Daleks are pretty low budget as is. Yeah. W- would you call them? <laughs> no, hot? Yeah, no, it's. I, I see what you're saying. Yeah. All right. And uh, forced to mention, yeah, and so it's it's a great war movie. Uh, in that you want to kill every officer in every <laughs> army <Yeah. laughs> who's ever ordered men to their death. So there's that. Uh, it's all the absurdity of Catch-22 with none of the redeeming humor. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So you want to be cheered up. Yeah. Uh, so uh, finally, there's another movie that you watched. Uh, yeah, Sarah and I went to uh, the Moxie and we saw The Rover, which is a uh, new film by... The guy who did Animal Kingdom, which is this... I really want to see it, but it's this um, Australian organized crime movie. Mm-hmm. But the rover has got Guy Pierce, Yeah. And uh, what I was terrified of, Robert Pattinson. Yeah. But he actually, like, does a really good job. He yeah. acts quite well um, playing this sort of... Um, uh, maybe mentally handicapped, uh, but, you know, so very slow uh, criminal... And then uh, Guy Pierce pays this just unrepentant, un- irredeemable psychopath. Um, and the basic premise of the film is that it's it's set in Australia after an economic apocalypse, like not in a collapse, but like a full blown economic destruction. So like people have been poured to death, quite literally, and like the world building of this you know desert, they just abandoned town, like yeah, mm-hmm. like of like people selling everything and things like that is uh pretty good but the basic premise is that um uh guy pierce gets his car stolen by these thieves who wreck after escaping a crime um and then he steals their truck to chase after them and get his car back because he wants his car back so he has a vehicle and this vehicle though it was wrecked a little bit is ostensibly better than his car and he does not care. He wants his car back. Uh, and then he finds Robert Pattinson, uh, who they who was injured and they left behind to die in the thieves. And so basically he takes Robert Pattinson uh, hostage and goes on this bloody swath of retribution to go get his car. Jesus. Like, And that's it. Like For the entire movie, you would just have to guess until the very end his motivations of just being so desperately after this single fucking car. Uh, and that's the thing. Like He's a monster and th- clearly the bad guy, but uh, I heard Bob Mandelo say on this review, and I, he kind of nailed it uh, on NPR, was that the purity of his motivations make you root for him in spite of the fact that he's just... He's just not charismatic. Just a total anti-hero because he yeah. just wants his car back. Like, And and so it's very unique world building, and then Guy Pierce just kills it 
and it's cool visually, and it is definitely worth a watch. But it is wow. brutal, like a brutal film. So yeah, we're just giving all kinds of cheerful stuff. Yeah, definitely lighthearted. From the mythos. <laughs> I like how we started with the mythos and then got darker after that. So you know, in terms of shoutouts. Um, so finally, though, we do have an anecdote or two. Um, first off, uh, I would like to mention I'm running a second group: uh, Bill, Melissa, Sean, and Nan. Uh, from Hex Hollow game, if you guys remember that in actual play, uh, I've I ran some I ran a, a, a game uh, in Trail of Cthulhu, Shanghai Bullets from El- Stunning Eldritch Tales, and they and so I said, what do you? I want to run Mass Annihilation. Uh, it's a big glow, tra- you know, big campaign. Would you rather run it in, for me to run it in Call of Cthulhu or Trail? And they all said like basically Trail. Uh, one of them, very different from our group. But yeah, yeah, very different. <laughs> uh, they liked the strategic resources like. What Sean was basically saying, I felt like in call, I just keep trying actions until I got something. I just keep gambling with the dice, but yeah. I keep trying riskier and riskier action until I got some kind of information. But in this, like, I know I got the information, so I'm not gonna like just keep getting de- more and more desperate until I get a clue. Maybe I can run an NBA campaign with yeah. them one day. Yeah, yeah. So someday, Kale. Someday. Mm. <laughs> I'm so excited about it. You got to play in one. Jeez, I did get to play in one. It was nice. Yeah. I enjoyed it. Yeah, I know. <laughs> you. <laughs> but uh, uh, anyway, so uh, that's coming up. And they had a blast with uh, Shanghai Bullets, you know, causing all kind of mischief in 1920 Shanghai. The scenario itself was written in 1930 Shanghai. And I said, I'm just writing without modifying it too much in the 1920s. And one of the guys, Sean, actually knew all about this. He's like, yeah, that's pretty much the same. So, <laughs> yeah. like, so hopefully the historians out there won't, won't chastise me too much uh, for getting something wrong. Uh, he's gonna bust through the wall <laughs> like the Kool-Aid man. I wouldn't even be mad. I would be impressed. <laughs> uh, uh, and yeah, so uh, but we have to talk about your trailer Cthulhu adventures that we you recently concluded, uh, the Final Revelations game. <laughs> yeah. Uh, okay. So I bought the Final Revelation at last Gen Con, and I finally got around to reading it. And they're purest adventures, so they're meant to emulate Lovecraftian yeah. uh, sort of nihilistic hopelessness. And as much as possible, there's very little like kill it yeah. with dynamite stuff like that. The, so the most cheerful adventure, the most, the most, I think the least dark scenario out of all of them involves a color out of the space. So <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it starts there and gets worse. Yeah. So like, if you know what, yeah. Anyway, it's very interesting build. It's built as a frame scenario. So yeah. you play two characters in every session. You play the character studying the character that you're going to play. Right. And then you know, flashback. And then you go to the scenario that you are actually playing. Um, so it's very cleverly written. Uh, everything takes place in England in the 1930s in the Lake District. Um, but it is like just reading it is worth it because it is at many times the most. Fu uh, scenario writing to the players yeah. I have ever read, and it's so matter of fact and unapologetic about it. It's just like, no, everyone's going to go insane and die. Yeah, they had no choice in the from the beginning. Like, encourage players to do this, but then just tell them it was pointless. Like, uh, this scenario is not complete. There is no mystery to solve. Uh, there is no way they could achieve knowledge of this, and like. At times, Ross, as we played this, was like, well, that's kind of bullshit. Like, yeah. why can't we do Well, I got all of this. I spent all the points. And then I, I then I had him read it. And yeah. he was like, well, Ross, you can tell me your reaction. Yeah. You were just like. Oh, yeah. No. <laughs> you, you were pretty much fucked. Yeah, yeah I, I ran it as yeah. it was read. Yeah, no, you did. You did. 
so I said it was an experiment when we read it, but like after reading it, no, I enjoyed. I'd never it. read a book quite like it yeah. as a campaign, and I was really excited to run it. Uh, but the one anecdote I think is from one of the scenarios. Uh, I won't say what order. Well, um, it's called the rending box. That oh one. yeah, yeah. And so at one point we encounter this NPC who's just totes crazy. <laughs> Yes. And he's just screaming at this point. We get the couple things out of him, and he's just like, ah! we're just like, let's knock that. We we have headaches. We don't want to deal with that. And, and the book, it literally says he answers two questions, then just breaks and yeah. starts making a high-pitched whine. Yeah. And <laughs> earlier in that scenario, David had spent like eight points of preparedness to have a bottle of chloroform. <laughs> Because it is the go-to tactic for the it's entire RPG crew. Yeah. And but what I did yeah. is I made him spin medicine or roll first aid. No, none of us had medicine. None of nobody had medicine. And yet. nobody. And I was like, all right, I'll make a first aid check. I had no first aid points left. And you so rolled a one. one. <laughs> so we killed our first guy with chloroform. Yeah. But they were so bad at it. I made him just think, no, he's sleeping soundly. Yeah. And a little saying there for another 10 minutes before we encountered the rest of the scenario. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So there were um, there were many comments on the forums, especially after sparing the spoil. Yeah. And uh, the Unseen Chupacabra's penchant <laughs> for chloroform <laughs> about how horribly deadly it is as a substance. Yeah. Uh, so we finally appeased that <laughs> as the players just straight up murdered an NPC but to calm him down. But it didn't matter. <laughs> yeah. And no, nothing does in yeah. the final revelation. <laughs> uh, yeah. Uh, so yeah so uh, that's our anecdote mm-hmm. and this has been RBPR episode 102 rules fetish this is Ross Baden I'm Caleb and we'll see you guys next time